If you're new here with us, uh, we've been working through uh, the book of Luke, at least a couple of chapters of it. We're in a series called Preparing the Way, which is looking at the time of preparation before the ministry of Jesus uh, formally began. And so we're in Luke 3 and 4, and today we find ourselves in Luke 3, uh, verses 23 to 38 which is a great text. Uh, We are looking at the genealogy of Jesus. And so I'd like to pray for us uh, and then we're going to head right into it. So uh, bow with me in prayer, would you please? Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this time. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for a long weekend, Lord, where where hopefully we get uh, a bit of extra time at home, uh, maybe with the family or friends. Uh, Lord, and thank you that we can gather here. Lord, we can devote our attention and our hearts uh, to the Bible Uh, to your word, and God, I pray that uh, through it, uh, you would bless us. Uh, God, that we would would come to know you more, we would come to know ourselves more, and Lord, that there would be truth spoken here uh, that would impact us greatly. Uh, Thank you, God, that we have this this privilege to come here in peace and gather together. I pray, Lord, that it would be very fruitful. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, there's a saying uh, that familiarity breeds contempt. And by that, it means that sometimes, as you get to know someone or something, you tend to get less interested in it. And I think we've probably experienced that to some degree. But the flip side, I think, is also true. Uh, there are some things that, as you get more and more familiar with them, uh, you are more interested. Uh, if it's a person that you tend to like, the more that you get to know them, the more interested you would be in that person, and that's a good thing. Um, I remember when I first started playing rugby, I was not very familiar with the sport, and, and it showed. Um, it was not a sport that I had watched growing up, because here in Canada, back in the day, you couldn't watch a lot of rugby if you wanted to. I had the idea uh, about the sport. You would run forward, but you would throw the ball backwards, which intrigued me, and so I, I wanted to try out for the team, and I made the team. I mean, you just had to show up. You showed up for practice, and they said you're on the team. So I was on the rugby team, and we started practicing, and I realized that I knew nothing about rugby. All I knew is that you had no pads, you were hitting each other, and you had to get this ball across the line, a little bit like football, but I really didn't know what I was doing. I thought that I was you know, getting somewhere. We had about a few weeks of practice, and then we had our first game, which was against a team from West Point Gray. Went down to Vancouver, and I quickly realized that I did not know what I was doing at all. I just remember a sea of, of bodies running everywhere and that I wasn't sure who to tackle or how to tackle. I got hit a lot of times, spent a lot of time on the ground. I think I touched the ball maybe once. And afterwards, the coach said, um, don't worry, it'll get better. And I thought, I don't know if it could get worse. So sure enough, though, as I got more familiar with the game of rugby, I did tend to enjoy it more. I kind of learned the flow of the game. I still, uh, you know, I figured out how to tackle figured out how to get tackled, and so things got kind of better, although there were still some difficult moments. I remember one time uh, playing Centennial, and there was a guy coming at me, I was trying to tackle him, and I woke up on the other side of the field, and I was like, what happened? And the coach said to me, what happened? And I said, what? He said, well, the guy. I said, what guy? The guy with the ball. I said, what ball? This was before concussion training, so he said, get out there, quit messing around, and so I went back out and was disoriented for a while. It did, though, get a bit easier, but there were still some difficulties. Um, That's very true when it comes to the Bible. When you are first uh, entering in sort of a study of the Bible, just if someone gives it to you, or maybe you come to church for the first time and you hear it preached, because it's unfamiliar, it it tends to be very difficult to access. Uh, There's a level of even disinterest. 
Uh, that's how it was for me when I first started reading the Bible in my teens. I started going to church, started, I got a Bible, and I did start to read it. But man, it was really difficult to, to get into it because I didn't know the characters. I didn't know the, the storyline. Even though I heard it taught on a Sunday morning, it was really tough for me to get into it. As I studied it, though, as the years went on, it became more and more accessible as it became more and more familiar. However, there were still parts that were always difficult. Parts that were just tough to understand why exactly this passage is here. What exactly I was supposed to get out of it. And I mention that because we come to one of those passages this morning. It's a genealogy. A genealogy of Jesus, which means it's a list of names from thousands of years ago that we don't know that much about. And very often when we come to genealogies, we we tend to go through them quickly or kind of scan over them because it's tough to imagine how it would be helpful for us. And yet, the Bible itself says that every part of the Bible is good for us. Here's a verse from 2 Timothy, verse 16 from chapter 3. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice that phrase, all. All scripture. That means the Bible says about itself that every single word in this book God put here for our good. To, to, to teach us, to profit us. So when it comes to texts like this, uh, we have two options, right? We can kind of scan through it quickly, which we sometimes do in our own devotion. We're not sure how it would be helpful. Or we can say, okay, God, you put this here for a reason. Lord, would you help me to have an open mind and an open heart? And Lord, would you help me to, to dig deep into this text so that I would see of what benefit it will be for me? So that's our, our goal this morning. We're going to see what it is that God has for us. And just as a, as a preface, just in your own personal life, I would like to make a plug for a study Bible. Uh, we have some of these out in the lobby, and we brought them in because uh, every home uh, really should have a study Bible. It's so helpful to be able to read the whole of the Bible, especially texts like this, and to have some notes from people who are way smarter than us, who have read the text of Scripture, read history, and can say, hey, here's some things that you should know if you want to understand the meaning of this passage. So uh, we have these out in the lobby. They're cheaper than Amazon. And we did it just because it's really, really helpful for the whole of the Bible, but especially for texts like these. So uh, I invite you to turn your attention. We're in Luke 3, uh, starting in verse 23. And I would ask that you silently pray for me as I pronounce a lot of names that are tough to pronounce. So... Uh, This is God's word to us this morning. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jenai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Matt, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosem, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Metat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Matata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, 
the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amadadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sereg, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, and the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaleliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's God's word to us this morning. A lot of names of a lot of people that lived a long time ago. And so our question is, Lord, why did you include this in the text of Scripture? What is it that you are going to uh, benefit us by including all of these names? And so we're going to walk through this and look at really three things that we see in light of this this text of Scripture. Uh, Number one, we see the genuine humanity of Jesus. Secondly, we see the problem of humanity. And thirdly, we see the solution to humanity. So let's start with number one, the genuine humanity of Jesus. Um, This really is the most apparent point, I think, that Luke included this because he wanted to make very, very clear how it is that Jesus, as a human being, fits into the lineage of humanity. Um, Just before this, Luke made a point of emphasizing the baptism of Jesus. And in that scene, God spoke down from heaven and said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And the the big point there was that Jesus quite clearly is divine. He he is God's son. He is is God himself. But here we see the flip side. We see Luke emphasizing that Jesus is also human. And what better way is there to do that than to include the, the line of humanity from which Jesus came? This is the whole point of, of genealogies or family trees. We want to see how it is that we as individuals fit into the rest of humanity. In fact, people have been engaged in this kind of activity for years. Uh, even to this day, we have services that help you to track your, your lineage. Uh, we have you know, historical databases that we can look to, but also uh, these days we can use science. I'm not sure if you've seen some of these uh, services uh, there's things like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. Uh, the one that kept popping up in my inbox that I finally clicked on for research purposes is uh, National Geographic. They have this service called Geno 2.0. And so what they, what they want you to do, you buy the kit and you take a little swab of your saliva and you send it to the labs at National Geographic and they take your DNA sequencing and they compare it with, uh, they have about 900,000 other uh, people on file and they can kind of track where your ancestry, where your ancestral roots are. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, we have to take it all with a grain of salt because, uh, you know, their, their view of, biblical, of human history diverges somewhat with biblical history and so we have to take that into account. But really... The heart behind this is the same as what's in our text. We have questions about who we are. We want to know how it is that we fit into humanity, who we're related to. This helps us to know who we are and where we come from. And in this case, it helps us to know know more of who Jesus is and where he comes from. Luke's big point is that Jesus is one of us. He is genuinely human through and through. 
And we can see it right there in the list of names. Names that are historically verifiable. Names that you can go into the text of scripture, you can go into other historical texts, and you can find these people, and all of it, what it says is, hey, Jesus was a guy, just like you and me. And he came from a bunch of other people who lived on this earth as human beings. Now, some of the questions we have as we look to a text like this is, who are these people? There's some people that are familiar, like David and Abraham and Isaac, but there are others, like Arphaxad, who we've never heard of. And surprisingly, no one has ever named their child after such a man. It would be very memorable. That is a fruitful time to to spend looking at these names, to knowing their stories, to looking at cross-connections and cross-references. That that can be very helpful to understand the bigger picture of of biblical history. But the the question that I want to ask and answer for us uh, this morning is is a bigger question. And that is, um, what's the nature of this genealogy itself? Whose genealogy is this actually? And you might think that that's kind of an obvious answer because it says right there that it's, it's Joseph. It seems like it's the family line of Joseph. But if you look in the text, look here in Luke 3.23, you'll see a part in parentheses. It says, Jesus, uh, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of, and it goes on. Now, on one level, that uh, comment makes sense. Because we know from scripture that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so, in fact, Joseph would have been the adopted father of Jesus. But everyone knowing the family, they wouldn't have known all that. They would have supposed that he was his father. But I think there's more being said in that parentheses. And that's because if you study genealogies, which I'm sure we all will after today, um, you'll know that there's another genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And there are some differences between them. Uh, In Matthew, the genealogy is is reversed. That's one difference, which is not a big deal. Starts in the past, goes forward. But also in Matthew, it begins with Abraham. So I'm going to put these two. uh, We got some visuals this morning. You're welcome. Uh, These are how the two genealogies line up. So uh, Matthew begins in Abraham, works its way forward to Joseph, and Luke goes backwards. But that's kind of the the history that they encompass. Uh, The big difference, though, is that if you compare the two genealogies, there are differences in names. So the difference in names are between David and Joseph. If you compare them, they're, they're a totally different list of names, which has had scholars for years saying, you know, how can we explain this? If they're both supposed to be the line of Joseph, why would there be different names? Well, there are two main uh, ways to explain this. One is that Matthew, instead of being the biological line of Joseph, it's actually the legal line of accession to the throne of David. And so, you know, sometimes a king doesn't have a son, and so the the, the crown is passed to a nephew, something like that. That's one option, uh, but it doesn't seem, in my mind, that that's the best option. The best option, in terms of the weight of scholarship, is that with the genealogy of Luke, what we're really getting is the biological line of Mary. And so it would look like this. It would be actually the the biological line of, of Mary's heritage. And the reason that this would make sense is that there was a custom in the time where sometimes a father would formally adopt his son-in-law if he didn't have any sons. So it could very well be that Mary's dad didn't have any sons and so adopted Joseph so that he would be in the family line. And then in that sense, it would be a line of Joseph, but in fact, the biological line of Mary. So if you consolidate these two uh, genealogies, you get this, which is very interesting because for one thing, it deals with an apparent consistency in scripture 
Uh, But for another thing, it shows us that Jesus is doubly in line to the throne of David, both on his mother and his father's side. And finally, what it does for us is it gives us historical credibility, the very thing that we're looking for in a genealogy. We're looking to corroborate what's in Scripture with what's in the world. And what we see here with Jesus is that his humanity is genuine because we are able to look at real people in history that he comes from. Biologically, he is a descendant on Mary's side from all of these people here in this text. The historical viability and verifiability of Scripture is is a huge importance. Um, And I found a story that I think speaks to this, whether we feel it in our heart or not. This I thought was interesting. This is from a Bible translator in Papua New Guinea. Uh, He was in the midst of uh, translating the book of Matthew, so dealing with Matthew's genealogy. And here's what it says. Uh, When a Bible translator in Papua New Guinea started to translate Matthew's gospel, he thought, the last thing I want to do is bog down these people with a genealogy. So he began in chapter 2. But the day came when all the other chapters were done, and he called together the men of the local tribe who were helping him, and they had to decide on the best way to translate the word begat. And they proceeded to go through Matthew chapter 1. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat, and so on and so forth. By the time they completed about six of these begats, the translator could sense that the men were becoming very excited. And so he asked them what was going on. And they said, do you mean, do you mean that these were real men? And he said, yes, these were real men. That's what we do, they said, referring to their custom of tracking genealogies. We had thought that these were just white men's stories. Do you mean really that Abraham is a real man? And the translator said, yes, that's what I've been telling you. He said, yes, but we didn't believe you. But now we do. That night, they gathered the village together and they said, listen to this. And they read the first chapter of Matthew. This chapter was key for the belief of the tribe. And you see how important it is. Not just for tribes who make it a, a practice of doing this, but for all of us. For any one of us who travel through the world to parts where the biblical action actually happened and to see the rocks and the villages and the stones and the things etched into to the granite, we, we say, man, this is real. This isn't just a, a book. It, it's the story of real people in real time. And, and the emphasis here of Luke is that Jesus was human. He had genuine humanity. And because of that, he could be of real help to the rest of humanity, which is what we see in our, our final two points. So second point is that there's a problem of humanity. Yes, the lineage of Jesus is full of real people, but these are real people who are all affected with the same problem. And that same problem is sin. Now you might wonder, where, Matt, do you find sin referenced in this text? I mean, it's just a list of names. So how are we to come to the conclusion that sin is an issue here? Well, I think just below the surface, in the list of names themselves, we we find something that is near and dear to our heart things that we struggle with as human beings. And the two things I'm thinking of are corruption and death. Now, in terms of corruption, we simply have to acknowledge that there are a lot of bad apples on Jesus' family tree. Uh, we don't know a lot of the names, but the ones that we do, we can see very clearly that they were, they were people who struggled with the same sins and vices that we do. Now, it's interesting, with ancestry, we... We tend not to emphasize those people in our family tree that were uh, troubled. I noticed this when I looked at the National Geographic thing. They have this this selling feature. It's called Genius Matches. And you can see it here. And what it does is it 
it takes your DNA and compares it to some of the, the people in the world who've had an impact, the geniuses of the world, and they trace back to see if you have a common ancestor, thus saying you are related to a genius and everyone feels great about themselves, right? That's what we want. What they don't have is a feature that says, here is how you were related to this person who was bankrupt six times, or this person who caused the downfall of this, this city, or this family that broke apart. We, we know that those things are in our past, but we don't tend to reference them. For example, in our, in our past, uh, one of the Glezoses, or Glezai as the plural is for Glezos, uh, <laughs> In the time of the Nazi occupation of Greece, one of my ancestors, he actually scaled up the Acropolis and took down the Nazi flag and put up the Greek flag. We tell that story all the time. I'm sure there's a lot of other Glezoses that did some pretty messed up stuff. We don't tell those stories, right? Because we want to feel like we are connected to the best of humanity. And the truth is that there, there's a lot of good in humanity. But there's also a lot of trouble. Uh, there's a a quote from a book that you, you probably know uh, because we all studied it in uh, high school, Lord of the Flies. It's a story of, uh, of a group of, of boys from a private school who crash land on an island and they have to kind of form a, a society. And really it's the story of how that society breaks down. But there's this quote that, uh, that always stuck in my mind. It says this, Simon, one of the boys, Simon saw the picture of a human at once heroic and sick. And I just thought that always... That really does describe us well. We have the capacity for greatness, but even in our greatness as human beings, we are, we are twisted, we are broken. And the Bible says that that's because our very nature is broken. And there's a corruption in each one of us. And I'm curious if, when you hear that, when you hear that biblical truth stated, whether that resonates with you or whether there's any pushback. Because in our society today, that, that would be very different than the, the prevailing wisdom. The prevailing view of humanity is that we are born innocent and that it's culture that corrupts us. But what we find in the Bible is, is very different. It says that the reason that our society is corrupt is because of us, which is not difficult to see if you've met any child at any age, really, <laughs> that you meet them and you realize that, that the, the lying and the, the selfishness, it was not something that was taught. Every two-year-old does, does not need to be taught to, to take something without asking. They do it instinctively because they, there's a corruption there. It's a corruption that plays itself out in all of humanity. And we see that here in the text of Scripture. The people stated, we know their problems, some of them. Abraham, he, he was a liar. Right? David was an adulterer and a murderer. Terah was an idolater. Jacob was a fraudster. We see here in the text of scripture the acknowledgement that all of humanity is corrupt. And that corruption leads to the other thing we see, which is death. We might not see it right away because we tend to read a book of a uh, list of names and we think of the lives they lived. But really what we're reading is a list of people who died. Because that's true of all human beings. We're born, we we live. We sin, and the Bible makes the connection. Because we sin, then we die. From the very beginning, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, they went against God's will. When they, when they in their hearts, trusted in themselves and then went and disobeyed his commands, we see the effects of that sin is death, just as God promised. Here's Genesis 3:24. By the sweat of your face, God said to them, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you, are, you were taken. 
for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And Romans 3.23 just kind of says it very clearly. The wages of sin is death for all people, for all humankind. No matter what you believe, your, your philosophy, your ideology, your religion, we all suffer from the same problem. It is the problem that we are trying to deal with in all of our, our healthy initiatives, all of our exercising, and our jogging, and our eating healthy. We're trying to forestall that which is certain. That is death. It's kind of it's ominous. Here's a quote from Benjamin Franklin, right? I think we know this. In this world, he said, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. It's the one thing that we know is going to be coming, and yet... My question to you is, how do you, how do you see death? If you're young, we tend to see death as something that's, that's far off. Something that really does not impact us in the here and now. And yet as we go through life, and as perhaps we have people that meet an untimely death, or as we have people in our family or ourselves that struggle with illness, as the possibility of death becomes more and more real in our lives, The truth that has always been there is something that we feel more in our heart, that we are headed inescapably towards death. The Bible affirms this to be true. But more than that, it it offers us a different perspective of death. That because of the hope found in the Bible, death is not the end. In fact, we are headed towards death, but we need not die without hope. And so we see here in this genealogy a lot of people who are dead, but it begins with a man who decided in his love for us to come and to make a way towards life. And so this brings us to the third point, the solution to our humanity. The solution to our humanity is, is Jesus, because Jesus was, was human. Jesus, in his humanness, he redeemed the corrupt humanity that we inherited from Adam through his righteousness and his perfection and his divinity. In fact, the climax of the passage, if, if you can call any part of this passage a climax, but the climax really is in the last couple of verses. Uh, here's what it says. Uh, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, mm-hmm, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. No other genealogy goes back that far. And Luke does it on purpose because he wants for us to see a connection, not not just between Jesus and God, but between Jesus and Adam, the firstborn of creation. See, there is a, there's some similarities between Jesus and Adam. From Adam came the corruption of sin, but then from Jesus comes the hope of life. We see that, that Jesus was like Adam in many ways. He, he had the same status as the initial son of God. He had the same opportunity to live without sin as Adam did, but Jesus actually did it. And most importantly, in light of this this text, Jesus had a physical body. He had blood running through his veins, just like Adam. And that meant that it was then possible for him to establish a new order of humanity, a new team, if you will. This is what we see in, in Scripture. We see Team Adam, and we see also Team Jesus. Two team captains. I don't know what the uniforms are, but we'll find out in heaven. So here's, here's what we see in, in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. The, the all there is really important. 
all of us, all human beings, men and women, young and old, we are all in Adam. And from Adam has come the corrupt, corrupt nature of sin. That's our biology and that's our spiritual identity. And yet with Christ, when we put our faith in him, our biology doesn't change, but our spiritual status does. We now become in Christ. We are no longer corrupt. Our sins have been dealt with. And this text gives us a, just a beautiful picture into the how that happens. Uh, we know, even if you're new to the church, that it has something to do with the cross. Because we make a lot of big deal about the cross. We have it everywhere. We have a new cross outside. We, we, we make a big deal of it because it's the place where Jesus died for our sins. But the question, some of the details that are helpful to know the answer to is, how is it that his death actually brought life to everyone? I mean, I know he, he was resurrected, but, but how can one man dying on the cross deal with the sin of all of humanity? That's one of the criticisms of, of Christianity. People would say it's unethical to think that, that the death of one person can pay for the crimes of, of many, many others. And in fact, we see this uh, kind of affirmed in Scripture. Look here in Psalm 49. Verse 7 to 9, it says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. It, it's saying one human being cannot pay for the sins of another. But notice, the problem isn't the idea of a substitute. It's the sufficiency of the substitute. You see the difference there? God in his wisdom did find a way. He did, he did organize a way in which there would be a system of substitute. From the very beginning, as people experienced death, we knew there was a problem, but all of us being in sin could not figure out a solution. But God's intention was always that there would be grace and forgiveness. And so he established a system of substitutes, of atonement. And really what I'm talking about is the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, again, as, as someone who is new to the Bible in my teens, I, I never quite understood how we got from a system of animal sacrifice to here worshiping Jesus in the church. It, it just seemed like two totally different things. But what we see in light of Scripture is that there is continuity between these two things. And so I'm going to read for you from Leviticus. This is where God was setting up this system of, of substitution for his people to deal with their sin. So this is what he spoke to his people. In Leviticus 4, 27 to 31. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar and all of its fat shall be removed as the fat is removed from the peace offerings and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord and the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. Now that seems very, very unfamiliar to us. But the points that are made there are ones that, that should be familiar if we know the gospel. And that is that there is severity of consequence in sin. In fact, sin always leads to death. It has from the time of Genesis 3. And here we see that there is still death, though 
and this is the second point, the grace of God means that the one doing the sin doesn't need to die. There's a substitute, an atonement. That's what that word means, that atonement to deal with our sin. This is the system that God had set up for his people, that they would experience the grace of God in the substitutionary work of animals dying on their behalf. But it was clear, as you, as you look at it, that there seemed to be a, a missing piece of the system because it was repetitive, that there was no end. You had to always, in a rhythm of life, bring back sacrifice after sacrifice again and again and again to deal with sin. It seemed that there was kind of a flaw in this system. But with the coming of Jesus, what we see is that there was no flaw. It just wasn't yet complete. That what was being anticipated was a final sacrifice, a final substitution, a final atonement, a sacrifice that would deal once and for all for all of the weight of sin. And we find this in the book of Hebrews, that the writer there makes clear the connection between this, this former system of grace and the continuity between the grace that God now shows us. Look here in Hebrews 10. It says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A single sacrifice, a complete atonement. Jesus, the perfect lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world by going to the cross by going there to to spill his blood, to die in our place. And what I want us to see in light of this genealogy is that that would never have been possible if Jesus was not human. That, That he came to earth to take on that which he needed to sacrifice on our behalf. Look here again in Hebrews, makes it very clear. It says, therefore, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation is just a thousand dollar word, which means sacrifice. Jesus came to be a sacrifice because that's in God's grace what he set up. As the divine legislator, he made a way for us not to experience the eternal death that we deserve, but rather to have Jesus sacrifice himself on the cross on our behalf. He did it. He could do it because he had a genuine humanity. He could do it because he had what we had. He had had blood running through his veins. He had flesh. But more than that, he had a flesh that was uncorrupt. Incorrupt? Incorrupt. He had a blood that was untainted by sin. And that meant that his blood had infinite value. Do you see the sufficiency that was necessary? to atone for sin, which is infinite. That Jesus, in his love, he he went to the cross for us in the line of Mary, a, a human being, biologically connected to all of humanity, then taking our place. See, the reality is that there is some blood that is worth more than others. And I came across a story that, that I thought might hit this point home. It's a story of a man named James Harrison, who had very special blood. The story begins in the 1960s in Australia, of all places. 
And in Australia in that time, there was really a, a, just a devastating reality to many, many of the pregnancies. Thousands of babies were being born, either stillborn or with brain damage or being simply miscarried. And as doctors tried to figure out what the problem was, they realized it was a problem of blood. That there's a difference in our blood, you know, between positive and negative. It has to do with a protein that coats the red blood cells. I just learned that this week. I didn't know that before. But what it means is that there were uh, mothers who had a negative uh, blood and babies who had a positive blood. And, And the mother's blood would see that foreign blood as a threat. And so the mother's very own blood was developing antibodies that was attacking the fetus. And so once they realized this, they, they wanted to develop a medication, an antibody. And so they, they scoured the blood banks, uh, the blood databases of Australia, and they found one man who had antibodies in his blood. And his name was James Harrison. Now, James Harrison had had a massive blood transfusion when he was 14 years old. He had a big operation, 13 pints of blood was put into him, and in that process had developed some antibodies. And so they approached him. And he already had a heart for being a blood donor. Since the time he was 18, because of how much he was helped, he had been donating blood. And they said, look, we want to try to develop a medication to help all of these moms. And he said, said, absolutely. And so from the early days when he was allowed to donate blood, he went in weekly to donate blood and plasma. I want to show you a picture of James Harrison. This was last Friday. Uh, This was his last blood donation. He's 81 years old. He is far past the time when you're supposed to be able to donate blood, but he wanted to keep on going. He has donated blood 1,163 times in his life. And from his blood, they developed a medication, which uh, the name I always forget, it's called RH immunoglobulin, which prevents pregnant mothers, their red blood cells, from attacking the fetus. 15% of of pregnant women in Australia and about the same in North America are given this this, uh, medication. And the doctors calculate that because of him in Australia, he has saved the lives of about 2.4 million babies. I mean, just just think of that impact from his blood. They call him the man with the golden arm. And he said in interviews, he said, this is just what he's been given to give. And so he's been going every week, pouring out his, his blood so that others would have life. And the parallels are obvious, except that really this is, this is a small example of the saving work of Christ. Not just because the numbers are different. I mean, 2.4 million people. There are people there who, who came to see this last uh, donation. They were just hugging him. It was a beautiful moment. But that's a drop in the bucket in terms of the billions of people that the blood of Christ has saved. And more than that, I mean, James Harrison, for, for the good that medical science has done, really they have only forestalled death. All of those peoples, all of those babies, they they grew and they had life, but just like the people in our genealogy, they will ultimately die. But with Jesus, with the blood of Christ, that is not the end of the story. There's a hope beyond death. And so so here, even in a list of names, we can see the, the beauty and the majesty and the grace of God because Jesus was willing, willing to leave heaven and to take on flesh, to be born into the line of Mary, to come with a human body to sacrifice it on our behalf. And so, in light of this text, the question that we might be asking is, is what profit is it for us, Lord? What have you got in here for us? And I think there's two things. For those who know and believe in Jesus, we have yet another opportunity to rejoice and to worship Jesus 
for his saving work, for his sacrificial work on the cross, for his humanity and his divinity. And for those who don't believe, those who are here maybe just checking things out or interested in the things of God, I think this is a great opportunity to consider the claims of the Bible. That there is really one problem for all of humanity, and it is sin. And there is really only one solution, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this text, Lord. Thank you that uh, even though it is unfamiliar, even though there are many names, Lord, that we we will never really know fully, God, you still have woven into this text great truths of the gospel. Uh, uh, better, a better understanding for us about Jesus, who you are and what you've done for us. Jesus, I thank you for your, your love for us that uh, in your grace uh, you decided, you, you made a plan with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit to come to earth and to live life as a human being so that you might have life to sacrifice, one that would atone for our sins. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would rejoice greatly for this God, it would encourage us and and it would uplift us this week. And I pray also, Lord, for those of us considering these claims, God, that it would stir up uh, good questions and perhaps some good answers in terms of who you are and uh, how much you love us. And I pray now for your blessing on us as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.